Ever since we were kids, we've been told to go outside, to get some fresh air. Of course, this was for the sake of our health, wasn't it? It was far more than our parents simply wanting stress-free peace and quiet, or even the merits of physical activity away from the breakables. Fresh air was good for us. But is it? There's nothing in fresh air but air. Why should the very air we breathe be next on the chopping list? Episode 8. Fresh Air Today we spend far too much of our lives inside, stuck in offices and living rooms, inside cars and public transport. So much so that getting some fresh air has become synonymous with a change from the stuffy status quo, like a breath of fresh air. And regularly going outside, especially for prolonged periods, is certainly a change for good, for many people, and for many reasons. But is it as simple as the air outside you breathe? It is easy to understand the logic. Sick and frail people go outside less often, but this is because they're sick and frail, not because they're missing out on some fresh air. Still, getting some fresh air in their lungs is widely recommended as a cure for almost all ills. You just need some fresh air, they say. In other words, you need a change, or you need to get better, obviously. By contrast, healthy people often go outside and get much more fresh air. Physically active people even more so. It is considered a sign of good health that you're getting lots of fresh air, but this is simply because you're already healthy, rather than made magically so by the air outside you breathe. In fact, there's nothing magical about fresh air. Fresh air isn't even fresh. Most of the air we breathe in has been circulating for a millennia at least. Each breath we take theoretically contains at least one molecule breathed previously by at least one other individual. Although air is essential for life, there is almost nothing in fresh air that is specifically good for our health. It's just air. 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. There is no more oxygen in the fresh air than there is inside. Consequently, attempts at remediation by opening windows, improving ventilation, buying houseplants, or planting trees in our neighbourhood will not change the chemistry of 99% of the air we breathe. Each day we inhale into our lungs about a dozen cubic metres of air. This is about the same amount of air contained in a small bedroom. And even if we were to stay in an unventilated office, with no way for air to get in or out, like in a hermetically sealed bank vault, or a submarine, or down a mine, or in an airlock on one of those fantastic science fiction movies, we'd actually have enough oxygen in that space for at least a couple of days. Of course, we'd be dead long before then. Not gasping for oxygen like in the movies, but slowly poisoned by our own exhaust fumes. 
The air we breathe in is normally less than 0.05% carbon dioxide, but the air we breathe out contains at least 100 times as much CO2. It is just as important that we breathe away the CO2 as it is we breathe in the oxygen. So if we were stuck down a mine or in a submarine, especially with others breathing the same air as well, long before the oxygen ran out, our own CO2 made by us and trapped with us would also eventually kill us. Although not as dramatic or as fatal, regrettably we are often stuck in small places with other people, like in a meeting room or a classroom, on a bus, on a plane or, or even in a car. Often the windows are closed and the air is set on recirculation to keep the exhaust-rich outside air away, but also reduce the costs of cooling or heating fresh air. But rebreathing other people's air means that CO2 levels will progressively rise. And in many of these indoor spaces, CO2 levels can be three to four times higher than concentrations outdoors. Not the hundred times like the air we breathe out. And although not immediately fatal, this increase may be enough to cause headaches, inattention, and drowsiness. And this is not the kind of thing we really want during class, let alone while we're driving. So after rebreathing other people's air in a packed stuffy bus or that business meeting, it's hardly surprising we feel suddenly reinvigorated when we open the window or step outside like a breath of fresh air. The problem is, of course, that the air outside may be fresh. It might be lower in CO2, but it might not be so clean itself. It sure feels less stuffy outside, but the exhaust fumes in the air are probably more toxic than the excess CO2 inside. In most modern houses and offices, continuous ventilation means that our indoor air is usually almost the same as the air outside, even if we were chained to our desk with the door firmly closed. When oxygen and CO2 are virtually the same, then so is air pollution, which gets in with all that fresh air. So the air is usually no cleaner or fresher inside or outside. Sorry mum, can't use that excuse anymore, getting fresh air. In fact, modern air conditioners are able to filter out some, but not all of the particulate matter and toxins from the air outside, making the inside air less polluted in many cities. Of course, if we don't change the filters on the air conditioner regularly, they don't help at all, and sometimes they can make a nice nest for some bugs we would rather not breathe in. Obviously, in days gone past, the air pollution inside our houses used to be far, far worse than outside. Back when we had open log fires, candles and burning torches for light, staying indoors was positively toxic. An indoor air is easily contaminated, mostly because our basements and our dungeons are less efficiently ventilated. So throwing open the windows and doors, or even better, getting out of the dungeons to escape, in other words, getting more fresh air, used to be life-saving common sense. Even today in the developing world, the burning of solid fuel for cooking and heating fills living spaces with fine particulate matter and probably kills as many people around the globe as smoking itself. However, even without an open flame, 
our inside kitchens can be an air pollution hazard. Particulate matter from our cooking is thrown up into the air and we can smell what is for dinner at the other end of the house. More fine particles fly off when we cook with meat and the volatile animal fats contained therein. And this is why the bacon or the roast beef can smell so fantastic throughout the house compared to simply roasting potatoes. Also the hotter we cook, like frying, sautéing and broiling and other hot methods, throw up more fine particles into the air. Using a gas top, especially for long periods, also puts more fine particles into the air than a flameless electric element. And of course, if we burn our food or our toast, it doesn't matter how it got burnt, those particles go into the air too, and we can smell the burnt food throughout the house, often for days. The potential health impact of airborne particles generated by cooking can be estimated by looking at the lung cancer rates. Everybody knows that smoking causes lung cancer, but lung cancer sometimes occurs in people who have never smoked at all during their life, with women at greater risk than men. And this may be partly attributable to the extra time women often spend in the kitchen, breathing in fine particles thrown off from their cooking. Most modern kitchens have a range hood over the oven or stove that aims to trap most, but not all, particulate matter, as well as odour and moisture released from our cooking. And these would work quite well, that is, if we remembered to turn them on or, or could tolerate the incessant whir of their extractor fans. And while the hoods can help reduce pollution throughout the house, many are not sufficiently placed over the front burners to have much of a beneficial effect for the poor old cook. Apart from oxygen and CO2, another important component of the air we breathe is its water content. The amount of invisible water vapour in the air is known as its humidity. The air of our blue planet contains on average around about 4% water vapour, but cold air has less water as water condenses out, and hot air has more as more water evaporates into it. Relative humidity is usually measured as a ratio of how much water vapour is in the air, when compared to how much water can be held in the air at that particular temperature. 100% humidity means that the air is saturated with water vapour and no more can fit in. It doesn't mean it's going to rain though. Rain comes from visible clouds of liquid water. But in hot, humid places, the extra water vapour in the air can make it feel uncomfortably stuffy, as well as seeming far hotter than it really is. And if the temperature inside us is 37 degrees, and the temperature outside us is equal or more, then the only way we can cool down naturally is to sweat. And in high humidity, our sweat has nowhere to evaporate to. And that is how hot and humid can be a deadly combination. But we can get used to it. In fact, the life expectancy in the humid tropics is not really that different from cold places, at least after adjusting for the mosquitoes. In a dry environment like a desert, relative humidity can fall to less than 30%. As our water-rich body loses some of its moisture into the dry air, this can make our skin look rough as fine lines and wrinkles become more visible, especially on our face. Our lips are prone to cracking, 
and our eyes feel dry and itchy. Dry air, however, is not just felt in the desert. In winter, the heating of cold outdoor air can decrease indoor humidity levels to below 30%. So not much different inside from that found outside in the Sahara Desert. And this is one reason why many people suffer from dry, itchy skin in those cold winter months, especially as they get older. Another example is what happens during a flight on a plane. As most commercial flights go up, the relative humidity is dropped to less than 10%, so the plane doesn't rust. But a value of 10% humidity, in fact the only place that gets that low, is in Death Valley, California, the driest place on earth. And not surprisingly, this is why many people complain of dry sore eyes, fine wrinkles and dry itchy skin, even after short flights in Death Valley. This is also why they're so desperate for a shower afterwards. Fortunately, these changes can be partly prevented. For example, if we don't want dry wrinkled skin stepping off the plane, moisturizers can help to reduce the water loss. Another simple solution during the winter is to use a humidifier in our office, and this can keep moisture on our skin. We don't want to turn up too high as too much humidity and the water will condense on the windows, you know, like in the Titanic. But another simple trick is to simply wear fabulous winter clothes. That means that we don't need to set the thermostat on max, blowing out that warm, dry air. The bottom line is that we need to get outside more often, but not for a lungful of the fresh air. Throwing open the doors and windows in our house is not for the air, but the sense of escape it delivers. Mostly gone are the days when the candle-lit, flame-heated inside of the house was far worse than the fresh, clean air outside. But sadly, pollution is everywhere now, both inside and out, and modern ventilation and open-plan living makes it much the same inside as outside. We can and should try and escape from it and find some clean air for the sake of our longevity. For more information on fresh air and anything else to do with longevity, please read The Longevity List by Merlin Thomas, available from all good bookstores or from xlpublishing.com. Thank you for listening.